Welcome back to the Levity Zone for the second of my two April 2015 talks for TEDx Santa Cruz. In the first talk, featured in the previous podcast, I described Shepard, a radically new type of spacecraft I have co-designed that could help us open the solar system to sustainable presence and life. In this second talk, I reach way back to my teenhood years in the 1970s. I was walking in the springtime sagebrush hills around my hometown of Kamloops, British Columbia in Canada when I had an epiphany. I asked my skinny 14-year-old self the question, how did it all come about? I mean, how did life start on the planet? And suddenly, there appearing in my mind's eye was a bundle of moving molecules. Inspired by Albert Einstein's use of thought experiments, which he called in German Gedankenexperimente, this was my own very first thought experiment. So I asked that molecular bundle, how did you, a simple bunch of molecules, get together in a machine that could make a complete and different copy of yourself? At that very moment, I vowed to work my whole life on this interesting, nerdy problem. It was a great subject for a budding young techie even before computers. After discovering computers, when I was 19, I took this fascination with emergence through decades of coding and new thought experiments. These were all just algorithms and drawings and notebooks until the day that I met Professor David Deemer, my mentor and colleague at UC Santa Cruz. Together with his decades of research and both of us peering over the shoulders of the giants of the field, we took this delivered vision into chemistry and publication in science. So with some further ado, I will take you now to the TEDx stage at the Rio Theater in Santa Cruz on April 24, 2015. After you get done hearing my illumination of the model, Without being able to see my slides from that stage, I will include two more selections. The first being an extended conversation with Michael Phillip of the Midwest Reel podcast, and the second, my June 2015 presentation of the model to the science community at the Astrobiology Science Conference in the Grand Old Hilton in Chicago. Hopefully, after all this, you might be able to picture those tiny molecular systems spiraling around their cycle, making machines that can make copies of themselves, all the way to life. How would you like to know how it all began? And I, what I mean, how it might have all, all of us began. Yeah? Okay, I'm going to take you on a journey. This is life. This is a cell dividing. Watch the nucleus go bing, and the cell go bong. Isn't that cool? Let's see that again. That's what it's all about. <laughs> I'll tell you my personal journey, and then I hope you'll see how that it's all of our journeys. When I was a young kid in Canada, I would walk in sagebrush hills like this, and I loved it. 
I loved the hills. But I said, where did life start from? So I thought, how on earth do you solve this problem? And then I read about this guy. And this guy used to do thought experiments late at night where he's running alongside a beam of light. And that led to special relativity. So I said, I can do that. So this was my first thought experiment. And in my head was a molecular machine suddenly appeared out of nowhere or something. And I thought, what on earth? And then I got the message from this machine, figure out how I made a copy of myself. So I spent 20 years on the computer trying to figure it out. Then one day on a long flight to China, I'd done all the work. I put on my noise-canceling headphones and my eye patches, and I went into a three-and-a-half-hour molecular soup experiments. And I became these molecules, and they're just flowing and flowing thought experiments. You know, I was membranes, and the membranes were peeling off, and they were encapsulating other molecules, and they were dividing, and it was like... But this was just a thought experiment, just sketches in a notebook, until I met this man, Dave Deemer, who's a one-letter mutation from me. I don't know if it's a mutation in the right direction or the wrong direction, but anyway, here he is in Kamchatka doing his origin of life research. He's one of the preeminent thinkers in the origin of life. Lived just down the road from me. So we formed this collaboration, the chemist and the sort of visionary, wacky computationalist. And he trained me. He gave me stacks of papers to read and books and things like that and conferences to go to. I loaded up my brain and then I closed my eyes about a year and a half ago and this is what came in. All the bubbles that I saw originally now were going in a cycle. And I think, what is on earth is going on? Oh, they're getting more complex. Oh my God, I better rush this off to Dave. And we turned it into science. And now it's published as the coupled phases model for the original life. I would say, perhaps, it's the first end-to-end model that takes you from individual little molecule solutes all the way to cell division. Pretty bold, huh? Needs to be tested. (laughs) Now, let's do a thought experiment together. Let's fly back to the ancient Earth. This is our computer model of what land looked like four billion years ago, or almost four billion years ago. Volcanic islands in a huge ocean, no breathable oxygen, totally alien world, but it had geysers on it. Geysers like you see at Yellowstone, pumping water on a regular basis like Old Faithful. And they're filling these ponds. And it turns out that just like your bathtub at home, when it fills with warm water and goes down and you sit in it and whatnot, what happens around the bathtub? A ring forms. Now the ring will form out of stuff like this, a piece of the Murray meteorite that fell 65 years ago on Kentucky, which has 70 amino acids on board. The building blocks of life from space. So all this stuff is in this soup, the the primordial soup, some people call it, forming these bathtub rings. And Dave researched this for 20 years and realized these bathtub rings are chemical factories. They can make all kinds of molecules, the building blocks of life. Here's one under the microscope. Layers and layers and layers of something called lipids, which is basically, you know, uh, like soap bubbles, your coffee cream, things like that. But it's in between those lipids, all kinds of molecules can form. Now take a look. This is what lipid looks like when water is added to it. Looks totally alive, doesn't it? Super cool. So here's our little model. Uh, We've got our dried lipid, just like a bathtub ring. Up comes our water and trillions of containers come off. Now notice when they're peeling off, they're picking up those red things. And those red things are polymers. They could be proteins or nucleic acids, all kinds of things. And now they're floating in the water. And those polymers are kind of like tools. They're kind of like random experiments, like... One bubble says, okay, I just popped. I lost all my contents. But the other one might say, hmm, this this polymer that I'm containing is like stabilizing me. 
And guess what? When they're stabilized, they live longer and they may go back and dump their polymer back into the bathtub ring and then it goes in a cycle over and over. It's called a pump or a kinetic trap for chemists. But it's a tools by chance thing. So there's a tools by chance factory, which is this bathtub ring making all kinds of freaking molecular tools, most of which don't do anything. They're pretty fanciful. But sometimes it makes tools that are useful. Take a look. Let's take a look through the eye of the needle here. Well, here's a model for you. hope you can understand it. Well, we won't say the word polymer again, I promise. <laughs> so say if that needle was a random tool, but it happened to stitch along the membrane and make the membrane stronger. You know, when you stitch you know, a, a patch and a hole in something, it makes it stronger, right? So that bubble lives, and it goes on and goes back, and it can pick up a second tool. So this is this magical cycle. Second tool might be a corkscrew kind of a thingy which makes a hole that allows things in and out. Very important function for life, right? A bubble with a hole in it. The next tool it picks up might be this magnifying glass kind of tool, which focuses energy on, on all the, the things now that are inside and makes reactions. It's called metabolism. Oh, how cool. Now you've got sophisticated little bubble cells. They're not life, but they're really getting sophisticated all at once. And they're sharing tools with each other in a massive kind of collaboration. And then one day, the best tool of all appears, the body of our little Swiss Army knife. What can it do? It can organize all these tools. It can code for them. This is the beginning of the genome. But it can also make a copy of itself, which then picks up its own tool set. Now we're at the very boundary, we're at the position where we can go to life. And the final tool that emerges, which has its role right now, is these scissors, which snips this bubble apart all on its own. This is the origin of life. These bubbles can go on. They've got their own tools. They can make copies of them, get stuff in and out, and off they go. We have the origin of life. Cool, huh? Just like that. But why? Why do we care about all this stuff? Why do we care about going to space? And why do we care about looking back at our origins? Well, Carl Woese, the great evolutionary biologist, gave us some really great wisdom, saying early life was much more collective, much more communal than it is today. It may have well been a massive endosymbiosis. The English for that is, life may have arisen through cooperation at the chemical level. Watching that system work, everything was being shared. The entire system was one system. Stephen Hawking said, our only chance of long-term survival is to not remain inward-looking on planet Earth, but to spread out into space. If we want to continue beyond the next hundred years, our future is in space. Let's put these two things together. You remember this from this morning's talk? It's shepherd with its biosphere, with its garden inside. But what is it really? It's another Earth. Watch this trick. What we're doing is allowing the Earth to make another, just like the cell division. And we, we may be life's only shot. The, the sun is going to turn into a super red giant in five billion years and just totally destroy the planet. We may be the, we have the tools, but we may be the tools to allow life to go forward into the cosmos. That is how important we may be, our purpose. 
So I would say our civilization is a symbiosis between all of humanity and all of life, and our future, our very future, lies in this most radical collaboration. Thank you. Now that yours truly, Dr. Bruce, is walking off the TEDx stage, let's follow him along to a more relaxed setting in an extended excerpt from the Midwest Reel podcast, recorded with host Michael Phillip just a week before TEDx. As you couldn't see my visuals from TEDx, this excerpt will illuminate a clearer picture of how the coupled phases might work to lift life into being. First... The whole underlying assumption behind, you know, typically how people talk about uh, the beginnings of whatever evolution is, is that it is predicated upon some sort of random uh, mutation or accident or some circumstance that may have only emerged in millions of different universes. It just so happens to be ours and we got lucky, and we are the product of accident after accident, mutation after mutation, and now we're here, and we're sentient, and we're intelligent, and, you know, we have these amazing frontal lobes, and we just so happen to have the hands we need to, you know, manifest society and whatever. But I'm assuming you you may have heard about this because you're much, much more plugged into this than I am. I read this article... I wrote it down here so I could point out some of the specifics, but it's from the University of Colorado Boulder and the University University of Milan. And it basically says that the building blocks of life, quote, guided their own growth or self-organized and formed these like interrepeated chemical chains long enough to act as the basis for primitive life. So the study is basically saying the, the underlying building blocks of like RNA had some sort of self-organizing properties. And it doesn't, and to me, I mean, again, I'm a lay person, I'm not a scientist, but that sounds contradictory to this whole idea of some sort of accidental, you know, alignment of the stars that created biology. Well, you know, I've been thinking about this a long time and I don't have any clear answers either, but what we've done in the last three years, and this is all new to science, um, Dave and I have come up with what I believe is the first end-to-end from solutes, which are really simple compounds and dissolved compounds, all the way to a cell division model. Most of what you read in in, in a lot of these uh, research reports is theorists talking in general terms. You know, a physicist might write about, oh, heat mattered. But it's of no use to the experimentalists. The experimentalists are the physical chemist who has to deal with getting reactions to work. What Dave does, Dave Deemer, my, my colleague at UCSC, he goes to hot springs that are plausible venues for origin of life four billion years ago because... It's understood that the Earth was a a great ocean, kind of like Mars was at the beginning, but it didn't have continents. It didn't have these granitic plates. 
because those floated up from the, the mantle later, but it had volcanoes poking up through the ocean. So that's probably the land you had to deal with. And so if then you look at the actual physical venue, forget about these wonderful flowery ideas about self-assembly, and then say, what happens in an actual hot spring on Kamchatka or Iceland that is in this very, very desolate, you know, brand new basalt just minted yesterday, and it's got a pool of water, it's got a hot spring coming up out of it. That's probably the venue. And then you look for the reality check of what was going on, including asteroidal material falling in an atmosphere with no oxygen. So then you can start. You can really start. And what Dave did 35 years ago, he took the Murchison meteorite, a sample of it, and scraped it off. And this is a, a meteorite that's quite old put it into solution and it had fatty acids that formed lipid membranes, which are very, you know, like the membranes in your cells. Other people determined that dozens of amino acids and nucleobases come in from space. So it's like, okay, that's probably what was available as building blocks. Then you find out, this is going back to what you read about, that lipids are self-assembling. They're self-assembling molecules. It's basically like soap bubbles. You know, look at how soap bubbles behave. It's really cool. They do all kinds of cool tricks on their own. You know, put them in water and blow them out of a pipe. And there's all these self-assembly things going on. That's why their lipids are so cool. So incredibly cool. Um, so there's self-assembly and that's a physical process. But then I think what the researchers and what you read pointed out was actually still true that you still need a whole bunch of random chances. And in our model, we both have a self-assembly thing, which is lipids drying out as a bathtub ring on the side of a pond. You know, if, if you have a lot of showers and baths, you get a ring around your bathtub. That's analogous to these hot pools. It's, it's really hard to, to clean bathtub rings because they're full of lipids and all this stuff that's plastered there layer upon layer. And it turns out that that layered edge is a chemical factory that can promote the self-assembly of proteins and nucleobase-based information molecules. And we found that by simply trying it in the lab. So the whole cycle that I came up with with Dave was what happens when the pond is filling up and then drying down and filling up and drying down again and again and again. Well, it turns out that that peels off trillions of little compartments trillions of, of little fatty acid compartments and they could contain random polymers made in a random tool factory called wow. this layer, the bathtub ring. And so you have the beginning of an engine and I call this a genesis engine. So you have trillions of these things in solution. You can do this in the lab and most of the bubbles pop. Bubbles tend to pop, right? You watch ocean foam, you know, most of it sort of pops. Those are mega bubbles. These are like tiny bubbles. Well, what if you got a random tool that helps stabilize the bubble? And this is the point I'll make as to how this thing works. That random tool kind of like plasters itself on the inside of the bubble and says, hold together, hold together. You know, Captain, she's not breaking up. And that means that bubble has persistence. And it, it is around when the pool dries down on a regular basis. When the pool dries down, it's still got its cargo of that tool and everything else in it. 
that bubble dries out, flattens up, and dumps the cargo back into the layers on the bathtub ring. And guess what happens in there? It synthesizes more of that tool. Mm -hmm. So the next set of bubbles have more of those stabilizing tools in them. And that's just step one. There's a dozen other types of tools that would emerge just by accident, but then get selected for because they allowed the bubbles not to pop. So natural selection. That's so yeah, that's that's our model. And we took it, Dave, in his incredible experience of knowing what functional polymers matter, worked out the order in which these functional polymers would occur. And then I came up with the final piece, which is what motivates a bubble to divide itself in water, not wait to be dried down and have its contents synthesized again and whatnot, but to try to divide under control in, in solution while it's in the wet phase. Because that's super high risk. If you take out a knife, you know, and cut your body from head to toe, it's a pretty high risk situation, right? Birth is yeah, a high risk yeah. situation. So for what in freaking, you know, Hades is going to drive the evolution of the high risk activity of, of one of those functional tools, those polymeric tools saying, ah, time to divide. And it not only has to divide, it has to make sure that the, the tools are made in duplicate sets on either end. You know, it has to have done the whole mitosis thing. And I, wor yeah. I worked it out how potentially this thing worked. And so that's part of our paper is like that final driving factor to life. So when those bubbles divide and pull apart, that is the transition to life because they no longer have to dry down again. They can persist and float throughout the hot spring. They can end up floating. It buys them time so they can float down to another little estuary in the springs. Kind of like a Yellowstone has millions of these, right? And it will find itself where there's more food to absorb. And then a whole colony of these things will develop. And this is early life. And early life is super fragile. It, it, cell divisions fail a lot of the time. You know, it has no genome. It has like no nuclear organ. It's, yeah. you know, yeah. it's super slushy kind of super simple life uh, that's very, very fragile. And it has to go millions of years or tens of millions of years to get more robust through evolution. But that's, that's how far we've taken it. And here's the last piece of that. And then maybe we'll, this is where we'll finish up. Yes. Um, the last piece of that is, so, and this is this will go into woo, which I know you, <laughs> yes. but good woo. Bring it on. Bring it on. <laughs> so, so I took this whole cycle of trillions of protocells. Here, let's take one last drink here. We're all made of water after all. So, Indeed, yes. So the cycle of protocells, I, I literally did an endo trip. Of and super high speed, super high fidelity while, and I threw this at the energy. And I said, take a look, you know, here's, here's the cycle. And uh, I then asked a question because I, you know, if you're throwing shit at the energy, you're out at the extreme edge of woo and you're, you're starting up something that's very mechanical, but very beautiful, you know, and, and very, tied in to this beauty of emergence and all this thousand years of research and a hundred years of research over life. You, like I, I captivated my mind and I ran it for the program and then I threw it at the energy. 
And I said, where is spirit in this? Is this a machine that made us? Are we simply made out of a machine, a chemical machine? And I got the pat on the head. You know, <laughs> nice monkey. <laughs> Good try. You know, better than last time. <laughs> now watch. And my cyclical model, which you saw on the slides, mm -hmm. was turned suddenly on the side. So there was no Z buffer. There was no depth anymore. And it said, are you ready? And I said, I'm, I'm sitting here. I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> and suddenly, instead of a flow of, of these protocells, I saw protocells expanding and contracting and popping and expanding and budding off and things like this. Just like Flatland, you know, Abbott's Flatland. When the, the 3D creature watches the 2D creatures coming through the plane and it says, oh, it's crazy. They're disappearing. Okay. You know, this is dimensionality. So I'm in like the fifth dimension at this point being shown this model in super high fidelity. And it says, what do you... And so the energy asked me, you know, whatever it is, the overmind or whatever. It said, what do you see? And I said... It, it looks like these things are growing and popping in the jewels they contain, the jewels of innovation, which are the functional polymers, are being dumped out into this continuum and then picked up by other things and then used for a time and then dumped out and then two jewels are picked up, two functional tools are picked up and, and it's like some huge sharing thing. And it, the energy said, well, what do you call this? I said, this is like an agora. This is almost like a community action. And the energy said, okay, now watch. I'm going to do something else. Um, well, first the energy said, that community is the definition of spirit, to answer your question. Now, watch me. And just like the mesh on your microphone there, suddenly all of these wonderful protocells that were doing this massive tool exchange and, and, and trying out and stuff like that were, were crushed by this mesh. This mesh came crushing down on them. I felt bad for them. They got, got squashed like Bambi meets Godzilla or something. <laughs> and, and then suddenly one of them just managed to squeeze up through one of the mesh holes, the little square holes. It popped free and then it covered the mesh and it, its progeny started to just diversify and everything like that. And then the mesh came down again. And another one, popped, a couple of them popped through the holes and they went on. They went on, they went on, they went on. And the, the energy said, this is natural selection. This is my process. What do you see? Asking me. I said, well, it seems to me like the lower levels did all of this innovation so that one or two could go through your mesh and then share that for a time, but none of them ever survived that long. Like even the one that popped through uh, died after a while, and it just gave all the innovations to the next level. And it was like a, it sacrificed. It made the effort, and mm. it was sacrificed a gift to the higher level. And then the energy said, "Now I'm, you know, the energy grabbed my shirt collar. Sometimes energies grab your shirt collar, and they say, now you listen, and you listen good.'" I'm only going to say this once. You people have got this, this term in your head. You understand evolution, but you're interpreting it the wrong way. You have this language term 
which you must get over, and it's called survival of the fittest. It is wrong. It is not how this works. It is not an individual in competition with the whole. It is not survival of the fittest. If you can't get off of this bad memetics, this, this wrong idea, you're going to destroy your world and destroy yourselves. Get over it. You know, I've sort of been summarily dropped on my tush at that point. I've picked up and dropped. Get over it. And the whole thing was, of course, you know, everything is supported by everything else. It's a huge, massive collaboration. It's Everything's connected. Everything's linked. How did we get this silly idea for 500 years We've been in this mythology, and it probably started with the destruction of Eleusis, that there was a kingship, and there was you had the ideas and didn't, and you had to go up through the hierarchies, and you didn't know shit, you know, and and it was this falsehood, and this story that we sold ourselves, and in in economics, you know, and in politics, and and the psychopaths use that all the time because we empower them. Because, of course, they are the fittest. I mean, look at Putin and his fit. You know, he's good. Yeah. He, can, he can gun down anybody he wants because he's the survival of the fittest. It's all wrong. And he's wrong. He's a terrible leader. He's a terrible presence on the planet. He shouldn't exist in that position. Period. None of these people should. But we privilege them. and We just have it wrong. So Mother Nature, or whoever this was, was, you know, grabbing my little shirt collar, like the little kindergarten kid, and saying get this lesson. So in my talks next week, I have to try to get this across in some way. I probably yeah. can't do it. I can't do it in nine minutes, you know? <laughs> but, yeah. So probably in the extended versions of, of talks, I'll tell this story, that experience. But that's an example of me going out to far woo and taking the things and then coming back. And Well, the interesting thing was because of that experience, I'm now seeing the model differently. I'm seeing it as a massive collaboration of tool sharing. And it turns out there's a whole part of biology that just studies horizontal gene transfer and whole systems, how the systems share and gift and sacrifice for the, the benefit of the entire system is the, is the fundamental driver in biology. And, and the one mutant that happens to be really super adapted is simply carrying those tools to the next level for for to be shared, period. And should mm. not be privileged and should not be the focus. The focus is the system. It's the, yes. me yeah. the, mesh, the mesh mechanism, just a mechanism. It's not how you should live your frickin' life and run your civilization. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Man, you've given me so much to chew on and you have thoroughly just blown, melted and ravaged my mind with this conversation. Like it's, it's so sprawling and I love these types of talks. And I, I still feel like we just barely scratched the surface on all these subjects. So we'll do man, it. We'll do it again. Yeah. Let's, <laughs> let's definitely do it again. Um, well, is there anything you want to uh, point people toward or uh, let them know about or to check out? You obviously have the Ted talk coming out. Um, any idea when that will be up for people to check out? That'll that's TEDx Santa Cruz, so it'll be on April twenty fourth, and then sometime I think by the end of May they start putting them up, and then TED Global has to kind of go through them and pick them if they're on the they're listable. You know, there's some kind of 
process by which they knock yes. some talks out, as we know. Yes. Um, you know, it's it's their forum, it's their party, you know, let, let them do, you know, what they choose they need to curate. Um, but anyway, I'm hoping that both these these uh, these talks end up listed because the purpose of the talk is not to uh, forward my uh, my personal agenda. It's to actually get investment in the Shepard spacecraft and and open people's eyes to the origin of life model, which should open them to a whole philosophy. And mm -hmm. I've been invited by Columbia University to start a dedicated seminar on origins. That would happen mm -hmm. a couple times a year, and we would look at origins as, as teaching things for how we treat, how we manage our civilization. So I'm hoping that these do that thing. Uh, so look for that. They will be linked off my personal site, which is damer.com, D-A-M-E-R.com, just my last name. If anyone wants to reach me, just it's bruce at damer.com. It's pretty easy. And then uh, the podcast, The Levity Zone, which we talked about earlier, levityzone.anything.org, um, has a lot of talks like this. So if people want to hear more of this sh stuff, <laughs> then they can find it there. Even wilder ideas are there. Now for the hardcore science geeks among you. Next is my 10-minute presentation to other science geeks mainly chemists, at the 2015 Astrobiology Science Conference at the storied and stony Hilton in Chicago just two months after the TEDx talk. In science, coming up with a new theory or model is only the first step. You need to have the model tested, refuted, or otherwise challenged by your peers. If there's no way to falsify a model, it is not science. If there is a way that the model is predictive, and that experiments bear out that prediction, then new knowledge is laid down. Our next speaker is Bruce Damon from University of California, Santa Cruz. Uh, he is going to tell us about couple phases enabling combinatorial selection of compartmental molecular systems, uh, and a proposed model for the origin of cellular life. So this is a, a model, a proposed model to contain and guide experimentation in the future. I'm not going to present much chemistry. This is something Dave and I have been working on for about a couple of years. Uh, and it actually builds upon all the previous work that you've seen today. Uh, in fact, all of that work could really inform how to test this model. So why do we need a new model? Uh, this group is applying systems chemistry approaches. We need to do that. We need to move reactions away from equilibrium. We all understand that. And we can bring in new tools like automation, like what Lee Cronin's doing in Glasgow. And what Dave believes strongly is we must really try to mimic prebiotically plausible natural environments. You know, we go up to hot springs like Papa's Hell and Kamchatka and whatnot. That's part of our work. Um, two informed guesses when you come up with a new model we drew from. Freeman Dyson's uh, double origins, his ideas about little bags of garbage, random assortments of molecules, you've probably read that. Occasionally, uh, the bags grow and will split in two, and the ones that grow and split in two fastest win. That's sort of his uh, back-of-the-envelope intuition. And of course, we've heard a lot about Carl Woese here. Here's Nigel Goldenfeld's quote about early life maybe had to lift itself in a much more communal way, sharing a lot of components. So those are kind of uh, what we're taking it from. So the features of this model are we're using hydration dehydration cycles to provide the chemical energy. 
lipids encapsulating polymers through two phases, anhydrous, anhydrous, you'll see that, and the selection of uh, these polymeric sets uh, in the protocells leading to stepwise emergence of functional systems. So our, our venue is the early Archean volcanic island surface environments where we've got perhaps geyser action or repeated rainfall creating these pools that will fluctuate uh, refill on a regular basis. So here's our computer-generated model of uh, what that might look like with our, our Wendell Fro Flintstones volcano here. <laughs> and uh, here's potentially a geyser that's filling a pool in the hydrothermal field, something a little bit akin to bumpus hells or more clay environments. And on the surfaces of these pools uh, should form these layers of deposits, which would be a mixture from the organic solutes in the pool itself as the cycling occurs. Think of this like a, a bathtub ring. So the aqueous phase is amphiphilic like compounds and Dave's work in the 80s showed that uh, you can scrape a meteorite and, and get lipids from what comes in from space, uh, moderately acidic pH. These compounds can undergo self-assembly in the vesicular membranes. But then the, the key thing is localized mineral surfaces that can create uh, a site for concentration of solutes and amphiphiles. So for example, if we have a little cup there at the edge, uh, if we have a drying down cycle or a, a fluctuating cycle, we may capture and concentrate this combination of things and they will dry, and this is what we've shown in, in our laboratory, uh, into these multi-lamellar structures on the anhydrous phase, on the mineral surface. So here, for example, is a, what might be in our little cup, it might be a some micelles, some vesicles, some membrane, bilayer membranes, and in between, in a hydrous phase, in between those layers, you're of course lining up your uh, monomers to then react in a sort of two-dimensional matrix and polymerize. So as you dry down, water's a leaving group and the phosphodiester bonds can form. So there's a freeze fracture showing what it looks like. So then, the key thing is what happens when the fluctuation switches the other way and, and you have uh, uh, water re-entering your little pocket. Well, what we've seen numerous times in the lab and what you've all probably seen is you get this budding off from these outer layers. And where our theory comes in, where our model comes in, is that these budded off vesicles could contain random polymers made in between the lamellae. And you get a lot of them, you get trillions of them. So what happens then? So here's where our thought experiment begins. Well, some of them are potentially going to be lost to the bulk phase and disrupted, while others survive. And this is where, where the model sort of steps off. So here's some disrupted vesicles and one that's uh, just hanging around. So during dehydration, the surviving vesicles will again aggregate onto the mineral surface. And we found that they kind of sandwich together uh, and then their membranes fuse and form a new layer or join with the previous layer. So any polymers that are in the vesicles will be trapped and contained and returned to the layer. This is the concept of the model. So we end up with a coupling of phases, the anhydrous phase and the hydrous phase. And this is the big single drawing that goes through this. So on the left side in the anhydrous surface phase, you could potentially get synthesis of polymers within the lamellae, and then they're deposited into their little test vesicle, see what they do. So this is a massive version of combinatorial chemistry, potentially in a natural environment. 
um, I guess what you chemists call kinetic trap to drive the whole system away from equilibrium on a large scale with combinatorial selection. So what we're doing is we're, we're searching therefore for the emergence of protocells in such a system that have functional polymers. And everything you've seen up to this point is experimentally demonstrable. Uh, we're not specifying what the polymers are, but they're likely to be RNA and peptides or complexes. So really the whole system is just combination and selection, amplification and growth of the sole drivers. So let's take a leap into the thought experiment. So Dave and I then asked the question, in this system of fluctuating pools and coupling of the molecular systems between the anhydrous and hydrous phase over and over and over again with some selection process, what happens? And we came up with this ordering of polymers that do functions. Like, for instance, the first one that's obvious is you need a stabilizing polymer that we call it the S polymer. And think of it like something like akin to a cytoskeletal function because that gives you more stability so it allows the entire cargo to return back to the lamellae, to the anhydrous phase. Then Dave suggested, well, maybe we would see the rise of, completely by chance, of pore-forming polymers, we call them the P polymers, that would allow solutes to go in and out of these bubbles. Then with this transfer across the membrane, you might be able to support the access of an M polymer, supporting some kind of metabolic process. And then we're looking at some kind of uh, replication process uh, or autocatalysis, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, importantly, some kind of feedback. Now, this is like the lifting of an operating system in a sense. And you think, now, how probable is this? Well, this would be driven by natural selection, effectively, because if these things do emerge, then you have an amplification of the total molecular load of those populations. So here we end up with our complex in an early protocell sort of working together. But remember, the replication, the duplication of this complex does not require division in solution because it's using the scaffolding of the anhydrous phase. And then you finally get this transition to cellular life when you have the emergence of the D polymer. The D polymer oversees the replication of the contents of the molecular system while in solution and then coordinates the pinching down of that vesicle protocell to make two, and therefore the system is no longer dependent on drying down and be part of the anhydrous phase. It can float throughout the hydrothermal spring system. Another advantage of these, these environments is that they're so diverse, there's hundreds of pools, because when you have dividing protocells, they're going to use up the resources through their pores and through their metabolic processes pretty quickly. And then uh, they buy time because they can divide in solution and they move on into other little estuaries. And the hydrothermal field is so large, some of these things are so large and so persistent that this gives life a long runway to go up the robustness curve and develop the mechanisms to allow it to, to survive in saline estuaries on the island and gradually uh, get ready to go global. So hypothesis and collaboration is what still needs to be proved is that this cycle exists. You know, microfluidics would help a lot. Do these populations exist? Can you go off the kinetic curve in a sense? Um, and looking for that S polymer, that's what we're doing in the lab right now, trying to find the S polymer that amplifies through these cycles. This is some of our equipment in the lab at UCSC. It's a, a well plate that has 24 positions that we can put the water in, dry out, 
what the contents are. We can have our amphiphiles, we can have our nucleotides in there and dehydrate and rehydrate on this cycle, sort of simulate that process. We're using AMP or UMP, we're then manually spinning and we're doing gel electrophoresis and nanopore analysis and this is what we're getting. I'm not a chemist, you guys can read this better than I can, but this is previous work of the hydration dehydration cycles. But we're now kind of looking for the, the S-polymer. This may be a model to look for functional polymers. You know, if we can go beyond the stabilization and we can see a, a, a pore forming function emerge, that's pretty significant, or any kind of other function that benefits these protocells as they go through this cycle. And I think that's uh, kind of at my time. And I would like to thank Dave Deemer for his collaboration over the last two years. And these are some of our, our funders and our collaborators. And this is how you can reach me. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks, Bruce. I guess I would start with a question about the nature of this S-polymer. Um, I wonder if you have a stabilizing polymer, what that's going to do to membrane growth. Do you envision that as something that's going to just stabilize the, the vesicles, or will it promote their growth and division as well? This is a very good question, because I have a feeling that the, the most effective S-polymer would also restrict the growth rate somehow, because eventually with the D-polymer at the end, the D-polymer's got to divide that protocell. It's got to time it correctly. So sort of way down the line, you've got to be able to control growth rate. Thank you. Um, so presumably you can get like a dipeptide or something small that will stabilize, but you're still really looking at longer polymers. And mm -hmm. um, what sort of length are you looking at for your stabilization polymer? And the other question, of course, is the, rep the replicators is going to you still have the problem of, a, of mm -hmm. all the replicas. We're seeing multi-hundred MERS coming out of our hydration dehydration. We're seeing like really long chain products. And you know, Lee's doing the same thing with proteins in a sort of similar setup. So I mean, I think in a sense, the production of large numbers of polymers, they're not super long, but they're maybe long enough. Of course, those would just be random sequence, of course. In random sequences, and that's the whole point. There's a benefit that they're random sequences because you may hit the right tool, you may hit function completely by accident. Yeah, but I guess random sequence or a replicase probably isn't quite so good. Yeah, I think once you have a replicase, you've somehow got to retain the memory. I mean, you have to have heredity emerge in the system, and I've been uh, working with a couple of people here. I'm like, how do you have heredity emerge in such a system? All right, let's thank our speaker once more. Summers from the Carl Sagan Center and SETI Institute, and he is going to tell us about energy transduction vesicles driving enzymatic reactions with an abiotic photosystem. So there they are, my two best and most deeply held ideas, both now out to the world. This all started when I was a teenager and decided to take on two big questions. Where did life come from, and how could we provide life and ourselves a path forward into the far future beyond the womb of the earth. Of course, this is only one pair of putative stepping stones, and I hope to be fortunate enough to spend the next 40 years nurturing these little projects along. If you have some skills and would like to join this little effort in some way, please don't hesitate to get in touch via my personal site at www.damer.com. Thanks go out to the TEDx Santa Cruz team for putting on such a superb event, to Bo Millward for helping edit these disparate pieces, to Michael Phillip for his most excellent Midwest Reel podcast, 
to Reno DeCaro for the superb front row photography taken during my talk at TEDx, and of course to Ryan Norcus for superb work on the graphics for both talks. You can see the video with slides of both these talks by searching for Bruce Damer TEDx or by going to the TEDx channel on YouTube. Also, check our site at www.levityzone.org for these links and other resources, including our published paper on the coupled phases origin of life model.